Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to All the Lights, show number 90. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and well on show number 90. We have a fun show today. Elizabeth Bear, Hugo nominee, story coming up. We've also got Neil Gaiman, no less. Neil Gaiman doing a little bit of poetry there. We've got his work. Flash fiction, we have Richard Johnson. We've got our good friend, Mr. J.J. Campanella, Science News. And we've got part two of English Assassin's Mervyn Peak. And as you can see as well, we also have some amazing artwork by Tom Bevan. Tom is an artist and illustrator. And like I say, I'll put a link on so you can go straight over there and have a look at Tom. Some of Tom's work is just stunning, to be quite honest. And fingers crossed he's going to help out again with more future illustrations for Starship Sofa. Tom, what can I say? That is just amazing. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. Thank you so much. As soon as I've seen it, I got it back right up my street. So we'll have a look for the artwork by Tom. Pop over to his site. Links on the front of the website. Hell, a fine show. Do join me. Do stick around. First up, though, is the editorial by my good self. And actually, I'm just going to go back to the old editorial just for this once. You know, I'm not going to talk about the sofa notes again. What I want to do is talk about how it feels to get things whipped from under your feet. You know, like kind of you're growing up in your childhood. And this is where it's coming down to. And I'm wondering if anyone else feels like this. I've had to come home for a few days just to look after me mum. My mum has been in a hospital for a few days having a knee operation. And, you know, I left I left home years ago, you know, 20 or 25, I don't know, might even be 30 years ago, I have no idea, not loving 30 years ago, but I left a long time ago, and, you know, I've had to come back, you know, and I've, my wife and kids are at our house looking after everything there, and I'm back in my old room, and it's really strange coming back to the, the village I grew up in, back into this bedroom where I used to kind of stay, just to, you know, that kind of convalesce, look after my mum to make sure she's okay for a few days, but... Things have changed, do you know what I mean? Obviously things have changed in this house, it's not the same way I had it, thank God. There's no Starsky and Hutch pictures on the wall and things. But I don't even know anyone in that, in the kind of local village where I, I grew up, you know. All my friends seem to have been scattered at all four corners of the world and even when I'm like walking around, you know, and I don't even know anyone in old timers or, you know, people who think who kind of, the, the kind of village elders I've never seen anybody like that and even like my old haunts my old playgrounds on my old playing places where I played they've actually changed you know it's been knocked down things have been moved and I used to play in quarries and they've all gone and it looks like I've, you know it, what what is really special or really strange is there's no kind of connection now with me with this village it's it's gone you know and yet you know, I've come back and I've come back with a few kind of 
books, you know, science fiction books. And I'm thinking, you know, these are my kind of collections. And, you know, most people know I kind of, I didn't get into reading until I was kind of in the later stages of my good life. But it's them, you know, I'm quite strange where these are now my kind of memories of like past times, you know, like novels, you know, science fiction novels like, you know, Joe Haldeman's Forever War and they're the kind of comfort, you know, like maybe everyone in the kind of physical world from your villages has, has moved away, but all the kind of stories that I read around here and, you know, things like that, they still, you know, they'll never go away, you know, the, the kind of, their memories I'll have for for ages. And that's what I seem to be clinging on to when I'm coming over here, you know, it's it's quite strange to be <laughs> clinging on to kind of science fiction, fictional characters and places like that when... You know, my real world, you would think this is where you kind of connect to. That isn't the case no more. And I was just wondering, I'm just kind of opening this up to anybody. Is that the case with you? You know, have you ever been back home? And has things just totally changed for you, you know? And, but you can just still cling on to your memories of your kind of your reading, you know, and your authors and, you know, characters, protagonists in stories. They're the ones that I seem to be clinging to, which is quite, you know, it's quite unusual. Quite nice, to be quite honest, do you know what I mean? You know, people do grow up and move away, but the memories I've had with reading and the characters I've met through kind of reading, you know, protagonists, it's it's it's, it's really strange and really nice. And I just wanted to kind of mention that because, like I say, I'm, I'm on my own here, <laughs> my bloody old childhood bedroom, and it's just very strange, but at least I've got, you know, thoughts of books and you know where i read them and stuff like that and like i say i didn't read them when, when i was dead young but at least you know they're still there in, in, me, in my memory in my mind so let us know starship so at gmail.com let's get into some poetry then and it's by none other than neil gaiman and i just want a, a big shout out to mike allen who kind of helped sort all this out mike allen over at mythic delirium mike's actually narrated as well and mike's got a great voice there for narration and it was first published in Mythic Delirium. And, you know, Mike got in touch with Neil because I was kind of pestering Mike there. And it was just, yes, thank you, Mike. So thank you so much. And everyone knows kind of Neil Game, and I kind of put a link onto his blog there. And, you know, what a star letting Starship Silver, you know, kind of do this and get it narrated and get it played out on the show. So a big thank you to Mr. Neil Gaiman as well. And fingers crossed, I mean, I don't know if it'll come up there, but... I've been talking to John Joseph Adams and Neil Gaiman's got a story in his new book that's coming out. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder if he might let, you know, he's always pushing a little bit too far. I wonder if Mr. Gaiman might let Starship Sofa narrate that one. So we never know. I'll, you know, I will certainly push my luck. You know, God loves a trier. I'll certainly ask. So anyway, this is a fantastic poem. And like I say, it's narrated by Mr. Mike Allen. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present... Conjunctions by Neil Gaiman Read by Mike Allen for Starship Sofa Jupiter and Venus hung like grapes in the evening sky, frozen and untwinkling. You could have reached up and picked them. And the trout swam. Snow muffled the world, silenced the dog, silenced the wind. The man said, I can show you the trout. He was glad of the company. He reached into their tiny pool, rescued a dozen, one by one, sorting and choosing, dividing the sheep from the goats of them. 
And this was the miracle of the fishes, that they were beautiful, even when clubbed and gutted, insides glittering like jewels. See this, he said. The trout heart pulsed like a ruby in his hand. The kids love this. He put it down, and it kept beating. The kids, they go wild for it. He said, We feed the guts to the pigs. They're pets now. They won't be killed. See? We saw, huge as horses they loomed on the side of the hill. And we walk through the world trailing trout hearts like dreams, wondering if they imagine rivers, quiet summer days, fat foolish flies that hover or sit for a moment too long. We should set them free, our trout and our metaphors. You don't have to hit me over the head with it. This is where you get to spill your guts. You killed in there tonight. He pulled her heart out. Look, you can see it there, still beating. He said, See this? This is the bit the kids like best. This is what they come to see. Just her heart, pulsing on and on. It was so cold that night, and the stars were all alone. Just them and the moon in a luminous bruise of sky. And this was the miracle of the fishes. There you go. What, what can I say? A big thank you to Mr. Neil Gamer for allowing Starship Sofa to do that. Do you know what I mean? Just tremendous. Thank you so much. And Mike, you know, what can I say? Mike, thank you so much. Get some more stories, send over to Starship Sofa, and we will certainly play them. Do pop over to Mr. Neil Gaiman's site and do pop over to Mike Allen's site, Mythic Delirium. And don't forget, copyright is most definitely Mr. Neil Gaiman's. You have been warned. Next up is Flash Fiction, and it comes by Richard Johnson. Richard Johnson started writing because he couldn't afford to buy Dungeons & Dragons modules, so he was forced to write his own. This is, a, he says, this is sad on so many levels. And he spent the next 20 years trying to forget... He's worked in as an agricultural labourer in Lancashire, a windsurfing instructor in Sheffield, and as a structural engineer in Singapore. A Friend in Need was the first short story that was published on alienskinmag.com. So have a look over there as well. He's currently working on a novel. He now lives in Melbourne, Australia, with his wife Lynn and son Adam. And when you listen to that bio of... Richard, there's one thing that sticks out that just made me tickle me pink here. A windsurfing instructor in Sheffield. (laughs) There's not that many of them around. So check out where Sheffield is one of the big industrial capitals in the middle of England. And not much, I wouldn't think there's much call for windsurfing instructors. But Richard, what a star. This is narrated by Mr. our good friend, Mr. Paul Campbell. Paul is the creator and producer of science fiction audio drama Estelle Vin Legacy, which should be releasing its long-awaited seventh episode very soon. Paul is also the co-editor for Steampod, the steampunk fiction podcast. A few peas in there, it's a good job. I'm going to pop sock on this mic. 
He has recently directed a production of The Graduate for the Stage. He can be found online at paulwcampbell.com. So the Starship's over, and her oral delights is very proud to present. A Friend in Need by R.P.L. Johnson Gordon, how wonderful to see you, I said after a moment's hesitation, a moment which was perfectly justifiable given the dishevelled appearance of my old school chum. It must have been five years since I had last seen him, and he looked as if he had spent the bulk of that time sleeping in a hedgerow. His clothes were creased, trousers stretched baggy around the knees, and freshly stained at one cuff. He flashed a smile at me, for a second doing a passable impression of the scoundrel I used to know. Derek, he said, I'm in a bit of a jam. May I come in? Of course, I replied. Gordon cast about the corridor behind him before limping over the threshold. Gammy leg, old boy? I asked. A prosthetic kneecap, a cheap one. He replied as if it was the most natural thing in the world. The door slid shut behind him. He gazed around my reception room with a blank look of incomprehension. I know that I really should decorate, but the bare walls are so easy to keep clean. The room is awfully small anyway, barely big enough for the two transfer chairs. I wouldn't want to clutter it up. He glanced at me quickly, as if checking to see what I would do next. A little canine mannerism that I didn't remember from our university days. Take a seat, I said. He selected the left chair, and I took the seat opposite him. I'd never seen anyone perch on the edge of my plush leather chairs, but he managed it. Just relax, I said. He did eventually, and I thumbed the armrest control. There was the usual slight discontinuity as the chair's hidden circuitry worked its magic. The merest suggestion of movement, and a couple of seconds later, the door by which Gordon had entered slid open to reveal the teak floorboards of my apartment stretching away to the full-height picture window overlooking the bay. Come in, I said as I jumped up. It's not often that I get to show off my pad to a new guest. I wanted to make him feel welcome. He still looked uncomfortable, but his initial anxiety seemed to have given way to surprise. He extricated himself from the pillowy leather and followed me into the living room with a muffled shuffling of sneaker plastic on timber. Drink? I asked, gesturing westward across the hardwood plain to the bar against the far wall. I have a rather fine malt that I reserve especially for old school friends. His old smile returned and lingered a tad longer this time. I could certainly use one. I crossed to the bar and poured a generous measure from the dusty bottle I kept next to the good tumblers. This place is fantastic, Gordon enthused. You must be doing pretty well for yourself. Yes, it is rather special. Do you like the rug? It's my own design. It's splendid. He paused and sipped his scotch. Listen, Derek, would it be all right if I crashed here for a few nights? I've got myself into a spot of bother. I can't go back to my apartment and I need a place to lie low. It will only be for a few nights, I promise. Jealous husband after you, old boy? Uh, something like that, yes. Stay as long as you like. I get so very few house guests, it would be a pleasure. Is there any other way in apart from the elevator? He asked. The elevator? 
He pointed at the armchairs in the reception area, still visible through the open doorway. You know, any other way to get up here? Uh, Fire escapes and so forth. I laughed out loud. A bad form, I know. My dear fellow, haven't you ever been in a virtual apartment before? A look of horror fell across his face as if he'd suddenly remembered a missed appointment. You mean this isn't real? It's real enough, but not in the sense you're thinking of. This whole block is virtual. Two thousand units, all with penthouse views. Marvellous, really. If you're talking about our physical bodies, they never left the transfer chairs. We'd probably better go back and sort out the catheter if you're going to be here for a while. Is that safe? What, the catheter? No, I mean just lying there, dead to the world. Well, there's the front door, but I never keep it locked. I mean, who would want to burgle a virtual apartment? There's nothing here apart from you and me. Shit, he said, and his eyes darted to something unseen to his left. He scrabbled at thin air for a second, and some momentary bug in the graphics engine made his lapels appear twisted as if gripped by unseen hands. He winked out of existence. Very bad manners. He was going to have a headache for days ripping out of the simulation like that. Still, it was nice to have seen the old chap. Maybe I should invest in a bigger place with another couple of chairs. Then I could have a dinner party, or perhaps some new software. I've always fancied a place in the country. There you go. Don't forget copyright as usual. Mr. Johnson, you could find him maybe one day as a windsurfing in Sheffield. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for that. And Paul, fantastic narration. Thank you so much. Next up, Mr. JJ Campanella with his monthly science news. Jim, what's happening? Tell us what's going on, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's June 2009 edition of Science News Update. I'm your host, Jim Campanella. Tonight, among other topics, we are going to look into an area of publishing that many of you, even professional writers among you, probably know very little about. And that is the world of scientific-slash-academic publishing. And there is a rather disturbing story associated with my background this evening, so be patient for a while while I ramble a bit. I have been publishing scientific research articles now for about 13 years. I have 25 articles where I'm senior communicating author. Uh, Translation, the guy who directed the laboratory work and actually wrote the paper and another 10 or 15 book chapters on various review subjects. And please, I am not giving you these stats for any ego trip. I'm giving them to you so that you will know I have a bit of experience and know what I'm talking about. So how does academic publishing in journals differ from the world of quote-unquote real publishing? First, scientists normally do not get paid for their writing. The journals do not pay us dime one for what sometimes amounts to years of writing and research. In fact, some so-called open publishing journals, a translation, they give away their content for free, actually charge the author to be published because they do not charge for subscriptions. I have just finished the final revision of a 20-page manuscript for the journal Population Ecology. It took a year and a half of revisions to make the editors and reviewers happy. Between myself, who did the yeoman share of the work, 
and my co-authors, hundreds of hours of work were involved just in the writing process, and I neither expect nor will I get any remuneration for that work, except for my own satisfaction and possibly a promotion to full professor in a few years to come. A second difference is that we have peer review in our writing. This means that when a manuscript arrives at the publisher's, it does not just go to the editors for a decision on publishing. It gets sent off to several other researchers who are highly published experts in the field, from two to three, depending on the journal. These peer reviewers are so petty, they will deconstruct your scientific paper down to its individual letters. They review for content, scientific worth, originality, methodology, whether you reached your goals or not, results, and of course, the quality of the writing itself. Depending on the eminence of the journal, some of those qualifications may outweigh others. For example, a few years ago, I sent a manuscript to the major journal Nature. Now, Nature is among two or three or maybe four journals in the world that are the oldest and most respected and prestigious. And most journals, you send something in and it usually takes at least a month for them to get back to you with a decision. Nature returned with a decision, and yes, negative, as you could have guessed, in a matter of 24 hours. They rejected the paper because the work was, quote, not novel enough, unquote. They had not even sent it to the reviewers yet. It was just the policy that if a manuscript was just not interesting enough, it got rejected out of hand. Peer reviewers add another layer atop this because they are generally hard asses when it comes to articles being published in their bailiwick. They will ask for precise language and methods and clearly stated goals beyond anything you might have anticipated in the process of the writing. I have reviewed papers for several journals, and I find myself sadly being as much of a dickweed as any other reviewer that I have experienced myself. We all act that way in order to maintain standards in science. Now, a third difference for most other publishing is that a very specific and formal writing format must be followed for publishing in science journals not just standard English. The writing students never seem to quite understand that scientific writing is a completely different animal than just about anything else out there, and that the rules they learned in their college composition courses just barely begin to apply to the process. Journals usually have four to five pages of small-type directions for authors telling them the exact format they desire in everything from font size to the way to present tables and figures. My students generally disbelieve these style sheets even exist, except in my own fevered imagination, until I show them such detailed directions. And oddly enough, worse, it seems that every journal seems to have its own set of style sheets which don't necessarily agree with the way that uh, other journals do. Citations, especially, might be very different in the way they're presented in one journal versus another. Finally, The major difference between most other pieces of writing and those in scientific journals is that the purpose of scientific research papers is not to entertain. Most of my colleagues, except those with a serious screw loose, in my opinion at least, do not curl up with a copy of the European Journal of Molecular Biology to escape and help forget their retirement accounts are quickly becoming more and more worthless each day. No, the purpose of science is to shed light on reality in a carefully designed and accepted fashion. The fact that we do not get paid and do get shredded by peer reviewers is the price that we pay to help expose that truth. If it were easy to get articles published, 
and we did get paid, then any papers published would be suspect as to the validity of their contents, the soundness of their methods, and the unsullied sincerity of the authors to present the truthful data to support their hypotheses. So where am I going with this blather? What happens when the trust of this system I just described breaks down? This can certainly happen on the part of scientists who make up data whole cloth. Falling into this category is the Korean scientist Hwang Woo Suk, who published articles in Science in 2004-2005 and fraudulently reported to have succeeded in creating human embryonic stem cells by cloning. Wang's name is still cursed in many areas of cell research because he probably set back research by a good decade with his falsehoods. His university fired him, and he was indicted on embezzlement and bioethics law violations, and I suspect that lots of people don't think that's enough. Huang is the worst example of this fraud in the last 10 years, but my point is there will always be scientists like that. Now, what do you do when you can no longer trust the journal publisher any longer? Scientific publishing giant Elsevier puts out hundreds of journals that cover all the gamuts of science from physics to specialized medical sciences. The disturbing thing that was discovered recently is that between 2000 and 2005, Elsevier published six new journals that were actually sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. Now, they looked like peer-reviewed medical journals, but they weren't. Of course, they did not publicly disclose this sponsorship to any researcher. And we can only assume that publication in these bogus journals was, well, a bit easier than in most. Among other journals, the allegations involve the Australasian Journal of Bone and Joint Medicine. This publication was paid for by drug company Merck and basically amounted to a compendium of self-published scientific articles and one-source reviews. Most worrisome is that the journal presented data favorable to Merck's products without any outside review or commentary. The other journal titles involved were the Australasian Journal of General Practice, the Australasian Journal of Neurology, the Australasian Journal of Cardiology, the Australasian Journal of Clinical Pharmacology, and the Austral-Asian Journal of Cardiovascular Medicine. Do you see a pattern here in terms of the titles? Not all of these were paid for by Merck, but apparently some unimaginative drone at Elsevier was asked to title them. Michael Hansen, the CEO of the Medical Publishing Division of Elsevier, says, quote, We are currently conducting an internal review, but believe this was an isolated practice from a past period in time. It does not reflect the way we operate today. The individuals involved in the project have long since left the company. I have affirmed our business practices as they relate to what defines a journal and the proper use of disclosure language with our employees to ensure this does not happen again. I understand this issue has troubled our communities of authors, editors, customers, and employees. Unquote. You can damn well bet we're troubled. Scientific journals must keep their objectivity or science becomes meaningless. All of scientific progress is a building process, and the future of science depends a great deal on the past. As Sir Isaac Newton said, we stand on the shoulders of giants. No new discoveries or treatments or breakthroughs will be made in the next 10, 20, or 30 years if there's any question 
as to the integrity of today's publications. If we stand on the shoulders of pygmies, then we'll simply stumble and fall. I think I'm not alone in this worry that these drug companies have corrupted the scientific process based on peer review. I will not go into a tirade about this, but I hope that Elsevier has learned their lesson and that they find out exactly how this happened. It is cold comfort that the perpetrators left the publishing company long ago. Well, sort of related to that first story is my second story of the night. This is not biology. It's kind of a tech report. DVDs and CDs don't last forever. I mean, even if you don't smash them, they're going to degrade over time and your data is simply going to be lost. Magnetic patterns embedded in computer disks degrade steadily over time and they have a life of about 20 years. That means that uh, you shouldn't assume that even sealed, protected DVDs of your wedding in 20 years' time will be usable or seeable. Dr. Alex Zettel of the University of California at Berkeley and his research associates reported this month in the journal Nano Letters on a system that they predict will be much more permanent than DVDs or CDs at the nanoscale level. The researchers describe a technique of placing a single iron crystal only a few billionths of a meter wide inside of a hollow carbon nanotube. Nanotubes are among the most stable structures in existence. Once inserted into the tubes, the iron crystals act as data bits and can physically slide from one end of the tube to the other in response to an electric current. The registration of the movement can be interpreted as either a one or a zero in binary code. Zettel says the technology will require further tests, but results from lab experiments suggest the device can retain data indefinitely. Great. I guess that just means that those fake journals from Elsevier will be around for the next billion years or so. Okay, onward and upward. Here's an update on the smallest exoplanet yet found. Remember, exoplanets are those outside of our solar system that are found by magnetic anomalies they produce or by their transit across a star. The star Gliese 581 is now known to host the smallest known exoplanet, being only about four times more massive than the Earth. The planet was just discovered by the European Southern Observatory's 3.6-meter telescope at La Silla in Chile. According to astronomers, the planet Gliese 581e is almost certainly rocky like Earth rather than icy or gaseous like the gas giants. Unfortunately, because the planet lies so close to its parent star, which is a red dwarf, it's hot enough to boil away any surface water and could not support life similar to that on Earth. That means that the small planet is not in the so-called life zone of the Gliese 581 solar system. And by the way, a red dwarf, they tend to be cool and red, I guess, but it's still not cool enough for Gliese 581e to retain any water. Another world record was revealed this week in a completely unrelated science at the Biology of Genomes Conference in Cold Spring Harbor, New York. What organism has the most number of unique genes of anyone yet found? And if you said human, you'd be wrong. We are arguably the peak of earthly evolution, but we still only have about 25,000 genes. The winner, surprisingly, is the Daphnia pulex. Commonly known as the water flea, the pinhead-sized crustacean is widespread in lakes and ponds across the world. When first studied, the genome seemed to have about 25,000 genes, like humans. That's a lot, but it's still no record-breaker. Eventually, 
gene-finding computer programs were applied to the sequence, and they found 31,000 genes. Additionally, a variety of experiments have revealed that there may be as many as 8,000 more genes that the gene-finding annotation programs missed. That is a total of about 39,000, which tops the gene count of the newly sequenced genome of another tiny creature, the P. aphid, which sports about 34,600 genes. Now, my last news story concerns caterpillars and their skill at obtaining food and acting as insect-confident men. It's been known for a long time that the caterpillar of the mountain alcon blue butterfly is very good at mimicking odors produced by ants. Ants communicate, among other ways, by odors. The odor that's produced by the caterpillar is produced so that the ants will ignore it and it can get right in there with the ants and eat whatever they find. The caterpillars are so good at mimicry, in fact, that the ants will often pick them up and bring them back to the nest as though they were ant larvae. Once in the nest, the caterpillar has hit the jackpot in terms of food. But something odd happens. In the nest, the caterpillar is no longer treated like a larvae anymore. The ant queen acts as though the caterpillar was another rival queen, while the workers behave as though the intruder is a high-ranking ant. The scientists could find no chemical explanation for this phenomenon, so they looked for other ways that the caterpillar might be imitating the queen. Until now, no explanation has been given to be able to explain this weird obeisance to the invading larva. It was thought it might be a chemical signal, but it turns out the caterpillars aren't making anything else other than the I am an ant hormone. In the June 5th edition of the journal Science, Italian and British researchers, led by Dr. Francesca Barbera, found a different explanation for this odd treatment of the caterpillars. Barbero knew that ants could make different sounds based on their social status. For example, noises made by the queen could prompt workers to take up a guard behavior, whereas the noises made by a worker did not, suggesting that the sounds enable the ants to identify the social status of the insect that produced them. The question was whether caterpillars could reproduce those sounds. If they could, then it would mean that the other ants would potentially treat them as royalty. Now, the team used tiny microphones to record the noises made by the caterpillars and their pupa. The caterpillars made similar sounds which the scientists could distinguish from both queen and worker noises, but which were more similar to the sounds made by the queens. So the caterpillars could make the sounds, but would they provoke the workers to behave defensively? The researchers played back the caterpillar noises to the worker ants and the noises made by the pupa, and they had the same effect as the queen noises. The workers switched to their guarding behavior. The caterpillars were actually able to mimic key aspects of the ant communication to successfully raid the ant's nest for food. Now, probably the coolest thing about this finding is that it seems likely that this fascinating story is simply the tip of the iceberg. Many other ant species are parasitized by other butterfly species. Now, the authors of this article suggest that acoustic communication may be widespread in these ants and that caterpillar fakery may be taking advantage of this. Well, that's all for me for this month. Thanks for listening. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, 
you are a star. Did anyone catch Mr. J.J. Campanella on the sofa North show? A fine man, very clever man. Do pop over. I couldn't tell you which show it is, but do pop over to the sofa North and check out Jim. Memory takes me down. I'm sure it was show nine. So look out for Jim Campanella on show nine. And fingers crossed I can get him back on. Main fiction comes from Elizabeth Bear. Shoggoths in Bloom. This is actually up for Hugo Award this year for Novelette. As we know, American author, primarily of speculative fiction, winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer 2005, and winner last year for Best Short Story for Tideline. Diane Severson narrated Tideline last year, and it was just amazing. She's worked in the media industry professional, a stable hand, fluff page reporter, whatever one of them are, typesetter, a layout editor, traffic manager, and import-export business. She's just published a wealth of stories, you know, the Jenny Casey series there, the Promethean Age series, the Jacob's Ladder trilogy, the new Amsterdam series and other novels, Carnival, Undertow and Companion to Wolves. She's got a short story collection out which came out from Nightshade Books in 2006, The Chains That You Refuse, and in October 2008 from Tor she had all wind-racked stars. Narration idea comes from Mr. Mark Nelson. Mark Nelson has been with Starship Sofa from the very beginning and is now a professional narrator. You can find him over there at audible.com. There will be a link on to Mark's site. Do pop over there. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delight is very proud to present. Shagoths in Bloom Well, now, Professor Harding, the fisherman says, as his bluebird skips across Penobscot Bay. I don't know about that. The jellies don't trouble with us, and we don't trouble with them. He's not much older than forty, but wizened, his hands work roughened, and his face reminiscent of saddle leather, in texture and in hue. Professor Harding's age, and Harding watches him with concealed interest as he works the bluebird's engine. He might be a veteran of the Great War, as Harding is. He doesn't mention it. It wouldn't establish camaraderie. They wouldn't have fought in the same units or watched their buddies die in the same trenches. That's not the way it works, not with a main fisherman who would shake his head and not extend his hand to shake and say between pensive chaws and his tobacco, Dr. Harding, well, huh, I never met a colored professor before, and then shoot down all of Harding's attempts to open conversation about the near riots provoked by a fantastical radio drama about an alien invasion of New York City less than a fortnight before. Harding's own hands are folded tight under his armpits so the fisherman won't see them shaking. He's lucky to be here. Lucky anyone would take him out. Lucky to have his tenure-track position at Wilberforce, which he is risking right now. The bay is as smooth as a mirror, the bluebird's wake cutting it like a stroke of chalk across slate. In the peat sorbet light of sunrise, a cluster of rocks glistens. The boulders themselves are black, bleak, sea-worn, and ragged. But over them, the light refracts through a translucent layer of jelly, mounded six feet deep in places, glowing softly in the dawn. Rising above it, the stalks are evident as opaque silhouettes, each nodding under the weight of a fruiting body. Harding catches his breath. It's beautiful, and deceptively still, for whatever the weather may be, beyond the calm of the bay, across the splintered gray Atlantic, farther than Harding or anyone can see, 
a storm is rising in Europe. Harding's an educated man, well-read, and he's a grandson of Nathan Harding, the Buffalo soldier, an African-born ex-slave who fought on both sides of the Civil War. When Grandpa Harding was sent to serve in his master's place, he deserted and lied and stayed on with the Union Army after. Like his grandfather, Harding was a soldier. He's not a historian, but you don't have to be to see the signs of war. "'No contact at all?' he asks, readying his borrowed Leica camera. "'They clear out a few pots,' the fisherman says, meaning lobster pots. "'But they don't damage the pot. Just flow around it and digest the lobster inside. It's not convenient.' He shrugs. "'It's not convenient. But it's not a threat, either. These Yankees never say anything outright if they think you can puzzle it out from the context.' But you don't try to do something about the shoggoths? While adjusting the richness of the fuel mixture, the fisherman speaks without looking up. What could we do to them? We can't hurt them. And Lord knows, I wouldn't want to get one's eye up. Sounds like my department head, Harding says, leaning back against the gunwale, feeling like he's taken an enormous risk. But the fisherman just looks at him curiously, as if surprised the talking monkey has the ambition or audacity to joke. Or maybe Harding's just not funny. He sits in the bow with folded hands and waits while the boat skips across the water. The perfect sunrise strikes Harding as symbolic. It's taken him five years to get here. Five years, or more like his entire life since the war. The sea-swept rocks of the remote main coast are habitat to a panoply of colorful creatures. It's an opportunity, a little-studied maritime ecosystem. This in part due to difficulty of access, and in part due to the perils inherent in close contact with its rarest and most spectacular denizen. Oricopoda horribilis, the common surf shuggoth. Which, after the fashion of common names, is neither common nor prone to linger in the surf. In fact, O. horribilis is never seen above the water except in late autumn. Such authors as mention them assume the shoggoths heave themselves on remote coastal rocks to bloom and breed. Reproduction is a possibility, but Harding isn't certain it's the right answer. But whatever they are doing, in this state they are torpid, unresponsive. As long as their integument is not ruptured, releasing the gelatinous digestive acid within, they may be approached in safety. A mature specimen of O. horribilis, at some fifteen to twenty feet in diameter and an estimated weight in excess of eight tons, is the largest of modern shoggoths. However, the admittedly fragmentary fossil record suggests the prehistoric shuggoth was a much larger beast. Although only two fossilized casts of prehistoric shuggoth tracks have been recovered, the oldest exemplar dates from Precambrian period. The size of that single prehistoric specimen, of a species provisionally named Oricopoda antediluvius, suggests it was made by an animal more than triple the size of the modern O. horribilis. And that spectacular living fossil, the jeweled or common surf shuggoth, is half again the size of the only other known species, the black Adriatic shuggoth O. dermidentata, which is even rarer and more limited in its range. There, Harding says, pointing to an outcrop of rock. The shoggoth, or shoggoths, 
It is impossible to tell from this distance, if it's one large individual or several merged mid-sized ones, on the rocks ahead glisten like jelly confections. The fisherman hesitates, but with a long, almost silent sigh, he brings the bluebird around. Harding leans forward, looking for any sign of intersection, the flat plain where two shuggaths might be pressed up against one another. It ought to look like the rainbowed border between conjoined soap bubbles. Now that the sun is higher and at their backs, along with the vast reach of the Atlantic, Harding can see the animal's colors. Its body is a deep sea green, reminiscent of hunks of broken glass as sold at aquarium stores. The tendrils and knobs and fruiting bodies covering its dorsal surface are indigo and violet. In the sunlight they dazzle, but in the depths of the ocean the colors are perfect camouflage, tentacles waving like patches of algae and weed. Unless you caught it moving, you'd never see the translucent, dappled monster before it engulfed you. "'Professor,' the fisherman says, "'where do they come from?' "'I don't know,' Harding answers. Salt spray itches in his close-cropped beard, but at least the beard keeps the sting of the wind off his cheeks. The leather jacket may not have been his best plan, but it too is warm. "'That's what I'm here to find out.' Genus Oricupoda are unusual among animals of their size in several particulars. One is their lack of anything that could be described as a nervous system. The animal is as bereft of nerve nets, ganglia, axons, neurons, dendrites, and glial cells as an oak. This apparent contradiction, animals with even simplified nervous systems are either large and immobile, or, if they are mobile, quite small, like a starfish, is not the only interesting thing about a shagath and it is that second thing that justifies Harding's visit. Because Oricopoda's other, lesser-known peculiarity is apparent, functional immortality. Like the main lobster to whose fisheries they return to breed, Shagaths do not die of old age. It's unlikely that they would leave fossils with their gelatinous bodies, but Harding does find it fascinating that to the best of his knowledge no one had ever seen a dead Shagath. The fisherman brings the bluebird around close to the rocks and anchors her. There's artistry in it, even on a glass-smooth sea. Harding stands, balancing on the gunwale, and grits his teeth. He's come too far to hesitate, afraid. Ironically, he's not afraid of the tons of venomous protoplasm he'll be standing next to. The Shagaths are quite safe in this state, dreaming their dreams, mating or otherwise. As the image occurs to him, he berates himself for romanticism. The Shagaths are dormant. They don't have brains. It's silly to imagine them dreaming, and in any case, what he fears is the three feet of black glass water he has to jump across, and the scramble up algae-slick rocks. Wet rock glitters in between the strands of seaweed that coat the rocks in the intertidal zone. It's there that Harding must jump for the shuggath, in bloom, withdraws above the reach of the ocean. For the only phase of its life, it keeps its feet dry, and for the only time in its life, a man out of a diving helmet can get close to it. Harding makes sure of his sample kit, his boots, his belt knife. He gathers himself, glances over his shoulder at the fisherman, who offers a thumbs up, and leaps from the bluebird, aiming his wellies at the forsaken spit of land. It seems a kind of perversity for the Shagas to bloom in November. 
when all the northern world is girding itself for deep cold, the animals heave themselves from the depths to soak in the last failing rays of the sun, and send forth bright flowers, more appropriate to May. The North Atlantic is icy and treacherous at the end of the year, and any sensible man does not venture its wrath. What Harding is attempting isn't glamour work, the sort of thing that brings in grant money, not in its initial stages. But Harding suspects that the Shagas may have pharmacological uses. There's no telling what useful compounds might be isolated from their gelatinous flesh. And that way lies tenure and security and a research budget. Just one long, slippery leap away. He lands and catches, and though one boot skips on the bladderwort, he does not slide down the boulder into the sea. He clutches the rock, fingernails digging, clutching a handful of weeds. He does not fall. He cranes his head back. It's low tide, and the shuggoth is some three feet above his head, its glistening rim reminding him of the calving edge of a glacier. It is as still as a glacier, too. If Harding didn't know better, he might think it inanimate. Carefully, he spins in place and gets his back to the rock. The bluebird bobs softly in the cold morning. Only November 9th, and there has already been snow. It didn't stick, but it fell. This is just an exploratory expedition, the first trip since he arrived in town. It took five days to find a fisherman who was willing to take him out. The locals are superstitious about the Shuggoths. Sensible, Harding supposes, when they can envelop and digest a grown man. He wouldn't be in a hurry to dive into the middle of a Portuguese man-o'-war, either. At least the Shuggoth he's sneaking up on doesn't have stingers. "'Don't take too long, Professor,' the fisherman says. "'I don't like the look of that sky.' It's clear, almost entirely, only stippled with light bands of cloud to the southwest. They catch the sunlight on their undersides just now, stained gold against a sky no longer indigo, but not yet cerulean. If there's a word for the color between, other than perfect, Harding does not know it. "'Please throw me the rest of my equipment,' Harding says, and the fisherman silently retrieves buckets and rope. It's easy enough to swing the buckets across the gap, and as Harding catches each one, he secures it. A few moments later, and he has all three. He unties his geologist's hammer from the first bucket, secures the ends of the ropes to his belt, and laboriously ascends. Harding sets out his glass tubes, his glass scoops, the cradles in which he plans to wash the collection tubes in seawater, to ensure any acid is safely diluted before he brings them back to the bluebird. From here he can see at least three shuggoths. The intersections of their watered milk bodies reflect the light in rainbow bands. The colorful fruiting stalks nod some fifteen feet in the air, swaying in a freshening breeze. From the greatest distance possible, Harding reaches out and prods the largest shuggoth with the flat top of his hammer. It does nothing in response, not even a quiver. He calls out to the fishermen, "'Do they ever do anything when they're like that?' "'What kind of a fool would come poke one to find out?' the fisherman calls back, and Harding has to grant him that one. "'A Negro professor from a Negro college. That kind of a fool.' As he's crouched on the rocks, working fast, there's not just the fisherman's clouds to contend with, but the specter of the rising tide, he notices those glitters again among the seaweed. He picks one up. 
A moment after touching it, he realizes that might not have been the best idea, but it doesn't burn his fingers. It's transparent like glass, and smooth like glass, and cool like glass, and knobby, about the size of a hazelnut, a striking green with opaque milk-white dabs at the tip of each bump. He places it in a sample vial, which he seals and labels meticulously before pocketing. Using his tweezers, he repeats the process with an even dozen, trying to select a few of each size and color. They're sturdy. He can't avoid stepping on them, but they don't break between the rocks and his wellies. Nevertheless, he pads each one but the first with cotton wool. Spores, he wonders, egg cases, shedding? Ten minutes, fifteen. Professor, calls the fisherman, I think you had better hurry. Harding turns. That freshening breeze is a wind at a good clip now, chilling his throat above the collar of his jacket, biting into his wrists between glove and cuff. The water between the rocks and the bluebird chops erratically, facets capped in white, so he can almost imagine the scrape of the palette knife that must have made them. The southwest sky is darkened by a palm smear of muddy brown and alizarin crimson. His fingers numb in the falling temperatures. Professor! He knows. It comes to him that he misjudged the fisherman. Harding would have thought the other man would have abandoned him at the first sign of trouble. He wishes now that he remembered his name. He scrambles down the boulders, lowering the buckets, swinging them out until the fisherman can catch them and secure them aboard. The bluebird can't come in close to the rocks in this chop. Harding is going to have to risk the cold water and swim. He kicks off his wellies and zips down the aviator's jacket. He throws them across, and the fisherman catches. Then Harding points his toes, bends his knees. He'll have to jump hard to get over the rocks. The water closes over him, cold as a line of fire. It knocks the air from his lungs on impact, though he gritted his teeth in anticipation. Harding strokes furiously for the surface, the waves more savage than he had anticipated. He needs the momentum of his dive to keep from being swept back against the rocks. He's not going to reach the boat. The thrown cork vest strikes him. He gets an arm through, but can't pull it over his head. Seawater, acrid and icy, salt stings his eyes, throat, and nose. He clings because it's all he can do, but his fingers are already growing numb. There's a tug, a hard jerk, and the life preserver almost slides from his grip. Then he's moving through the water, being towed, banged hard against the side of the bluebird. The fisherman's hands close on his wrist, and he's too numb to feel the burn of chafing skin. Harding kicks, scrabbles. Hips banged, shins bruised, he hauls himself, and his himself hauled, over the sideboard of the boat. He's shivering under a wool navy blanket before he realizes that the fisherman has got it over him. There's coffee in a thermos lid between his hands. Harding wonders, with what he distractedly recognizes as classic dissociative ideation, whether anyone in America will be able to buy German products soon. Some day, this fisherman's battered coffee-keeper might be a collector's item. They don't make it in before the rain comes. The next day is meant to break clear and cold. Today's rain only a passing herald of winter. Harding regrets the days lost to weather and recalcitrant fishermen, but at least he knows he has a ride tomorrow. 
which means he can spend the afternoon in research, rather than hunting the docks looking for a willing captain. He jams his wet feet into his wellies and thanks the fisherman, then hikes back to his inn, the only inn in town that's open in November. Half an hour later, clean and dry and still shaken, he considers his options. After the Great War, he lived for a while in Harlem. He remembers the riots and the music, and the sense of community. His mother still lives there, growing gracious as a flower in a window-box. But he left that for college in Alabama, and he has not forgotten the experience of segregated restaurants, or the excuses he made for never leaving the campus. He couldn't get out of the South fast enough. His Ph.D. work at Yale, the first school in America to have awarded a doctorate to a Negro, taught him two things other than natural history. One was that Booker T. Washington was right, and white men were afraid of a smart colored. The other was that W.E.B. Dubois was right, and sometimes people were scared of what was needful. Whatever resentment he experienced from faculty or fellow students, in the North he can walk into almost any bar and order any drink he wants. And right now he wants a drink almost as badly as he does not care to be alone. He thinks he'll have something hot and go to the library. It's still raining as he crosses the street to the tavern. Shaking water droplets off his hat, he chooses a table near the back. Next to the kitchen door, but it's the only empty place and might be warm. He must pass through the lunchtime crowd to get there, sway-backed wooden floorboards bowing underfoot. Despite the storm, the place is full, and in full argument. No one breaks conversation as he enters. Harding cannot help but overhear. "'Jew bastards,' says one. "'We should do the same.' "'No one asked you,' said the next man, wearing a cap pulled low. "'If there's gonna be a war, I hope we stay out of it.' That piques Harding's interest. The man has his elbow on a thrice-folded Boston Herald, and Harding steps close, but not too close. "'Excuse me, sir, are you finished with your paper?' "'What?' he turns, and for a moment Harding fears hostility. But his sun-lined face folds around a more generous expression. "'Sure, boy,' he says. "'You can have it.' He pushes the paper across the bar with fingertips, and Harding receives it the same way. "'Thank you,' he says, but the Yankee has already turned back to his friend, the anti-Semite. Hand shaking, Harding claims the vacant table before he unfolds the paper. He holds the flimsy up to catch the light. The headline is on the front page in the international section. "'Germany sanctions lynch law.' "'Oh, God,' Harding says, and if the light in his corner weren't so bad, he'd lay the tabloid down on the table as if it is filthy. He reads, the edge of the paper shaking, of ransacked shops and burned synagogues, of Jews rounded up by the thousands and taken to places no one seems able to name. He reads rumors of deportation. He reads of murders and beatings and broken glass.' As if his grandfather's hand rests on one shoulder and the defeated hand of the Kaiser on the other, he feels the stifling shadow of history, the press of incipient war. Oh, God, he repeats. He lays the paper down. Are you ready to order? Somehow the waitress has appeared at his elbow without his even noticing. Scotch, he says, when he has been meaning to order a beer. Make it a triple, please. 
Anything to eat? His stomach clenches. No, he says, I'm not hungry. She leaves for the next table, where she calls a man in a cloth cap, sir. Harding puts his damp fedora on the tabletop. The chair across from him scrapes out. He looks up to meet the eyes of the fisherman. May I sit, Professor Harding? Of course. He holds out his hand, taking a risk. Can I buy you a drink? Uh, Call me Paul. Bert, says the fisherman, and takes his hand before dropping into the chair. I'll have what you're having. Harding can't catch the waitress's eye, but the fisherman manages. He holds up two fingers. She nods and comes over. You still look a bit peaked, fisherman says, when she's delivered their order. That'll put some color in your cheeks. Uh, I mean... Harding waves it off. He's suddenly more willing to make allowances. It's not the swim, he says, and takes another risk. He pushes the newspaper across the table and waits for the fisherman's reaction. Oh, Christ, they're going to kill every one of them, Pert says, and spins the herald away so he doesn't have to read the rest of it. Why didn't they get out? Any fool could have seen it coming. And where would they run? Harding could have asked. But it's not an answerable question, and from the look on Bert's face, he knows that as soon as it's out of his mouth. Instead, he quotes, There has been no tragedy in modern times equal in its awful effects to the fight on the Jew in Germany. It is an attack on civilization, comparable only to such horrors as the Spanish Inquisition and the African slave trade. Bert taps his fingers on the table. Is that your opinion? W.E.B. Dubois, Harding says, about two years ago. He also said, There is a campaign of race prejudice carried on, openly, continuously, and determinedly against all non-Nordic races, but specifically against the Jews, which surpasses in vindictive cruelty and public insult anything I have ever seen, and I have seen much. "'Isn't he that colored who hates white folks?' Bert asks. Harding shakes his head. "'No,' he answers. "'Not unless you consider it hating white folks that he also compared the treatment of Jews in Germany to Jim Crowism in the U.S.' "'I don't hold with that,' Bert says. "'I mean, no offense. I wouldn't want you marrying my sister.' "'It's all right,' Harding answers. "'I wouldn't want you marrying mine either.' "'Finally,' a joke that Bert laughs at. And then he chokes to a halt and stares at his hands, wrapped around the glass. Harding doesn't complain when, with the side of his hand, he nudges the paper to the floor, where it can be trampled. And then Harding finds the courage to say, "'Where would they run to? Nobody wants them. Borders are closed.' "'My grandfather's house was on the Underground Railroad. Did you know that?' Bert lowers his voice, a conspiratorial whisper. "'He was from away, but don't tell anyone around here. I'd never hear the end of it.' "'Away?' "'White River Junction,' Bert stage whispers, and Harding can't tell if that's mocking irony or deep personal shame. "'Vermont!' They finish their scotch in silence. It burns all the way down and they sit for a moment together before Harding excuses himself to go to the library. "'Wear your coat, Paul,' Bert says. "'It's still raining.' Unlike the tavern, the library is empty. 
except for the librarian, who looks up nervously when Harding enters. Harding's head is spinning from the liquor, but at least he's warming up. He drapes his coat over a steam radiator and heads for the 595 shelf, Science Invertebrates. Most of the books here are already in his own library, but there's one, a Harvard professor's 1839 monograph on marine animals of the Northeast that he has hopes for. According to the index, it references shoggoths, under the old name of submersible jellies, on pages 46, 78, and 133 to 137. In addition, there's a plate bound in between pages 120 and 121, which Harding means to save for last. But the first two mentions are in passing, and pages 133 to 138 inclusive have been razored out so cleanly that Harding flips back and forth several times before he's sure they are gone. He pauses there, knees tucked under and one elbow resting on a scarred blonde desk. He drops his right hand from where it rests against his forehead. The book falls open naturally to the mutilation. Whoever liberated the pages also cracked the binding. Harding runs his thumb down the join and doesn't notice skin parting on the paper edge until he sees the blood. He snatches his hand back. Belatedly, the paper cut stings. Oh, he says, and sticks his thumb in his mouth. Blood tastes like ocean. Half an hour later, he's on the telephone long distance, trying to get and then keep a connection to Professor John Marshland, his colleague and mentor. Even in town, the only option is a party line, and though the operator is pleasant, the connection still sounds like he's shouting down a piece of string run between two tin cans, through a tunnel. Gilman! Harding bellows, wincing, wondering what the operator thinks of all this. He spells it twice. 1839. Deep Sea and Intertidal Species of the North Atlantic. The Yale Library should have a copy. The answer is almost inaudible between hiss and crackle, in pieces, as if over glass-breaking, as if from the bottom of the ocean. It's a dark 4 p.m. in the easternmost U.S., and Harding can't help but recall that in Europe night has already fallen. In for need, Doc Harding. Harding shouts the page numbers, cupping the checked-out library book in his bandaged hand. It's open to the plate. Inexplicably, the thief left that. It's a hand-tinted John James Audubon engraving, picturing a quiescent shoggoth, docile on a rock. Gulls wheel all around it. Audubon, the Creole child of a Frenchman, who scarcely escaped being drafted to serve in the Napoleonic Wars, has depicted the glassy translucence of the shoggoth with such perfection that the bent shadows of refracted wings can be seen right through it. The cold front that came in behind the rain brought fog with it, and the entire harbor is blanketed by morning. Harding shows up at 6 a.m. anyway, hopeful, a thermos in his hand, German or not, the hardware store still has some, and his sampling kit in a pack slung over his shoulder. Bert shakes his head by a piling. "'Be socked in all day,' he says regretfully. He won't take the bluebird out in this, and Harding knows it's wisdom, even as he frets under the delay. "'Want to come have breakfast with me and Mrs. Clay?' "'Clay. A good, honest name for a good, honest Yankee. She won't mind?' 
She won't mind if I say it's all right, Bert says. I told her she might should expect you. So Harding seals his kid under a tarp in the Bluebird, he's already brought it this far, and with his coffee in one hand and the paper tucked under his elbow, follows Bert along the water. Any news? Bert asks, when they've walked a hundred yards. Harding wonders if he doesn't take the paper, or if he's just making conversation. It's still going on in Germany. Damn, Bert says. He shakes his head, steel-gray hair sticking out under his cap in every direction. Still, what are you going to do, enlist? The twist of his lip as he looks at Harding makes them, after all, two old military men together. They're of an age, though Harding's indoor life makes him look younger. Harding shakes his head. Even if Roosevelt was ever going to bring us into it, they'd never let me fight, he says bitterly. That was the Great War, too. Colored soldiers mostly work supply, thank you. At least Nathan Harding got to shoot back. I always heard you fellows would prefer not to come to the front, Bert says, and Harding can't help it. He bursts out laughing. Who would, he says, when he's bitten his lip and stopped snorting. It doesn't mean we won't, or can't. Booker T. Washington was raised a slave, died of overwork, the way Bert probably will, if Harding is any judge, and believed in imitating and appeasing white folks. But W.E.B. Du Bois was born in the North, and didn't believe that anything is solved by making one's self transparent, inoffensive, invisible. Bert spits between his teeth a long, deliberate stream of tobacco. Parlez-vous Francais? His accent is better than Harding would have guessed. Harding knows, all of a sudden, where Bert spent his war, and Harding, surprising himself, pities him. On pew. Well, if you want to fight the kraut so bad, you could join the Foreign Legion. When Harding gets back to the hotel, full of apple pie and cheddar cheese and maple-smoked bacon, a yellow envelope waits in a cubby behind the desk. Western Union, 1938, November 10, A.M. 10.03, N.A. 114.21.2.Y.A., New Haven, Connecticut, 0945A. Dr. Paul Harding, Island House, Passamaquoddy, Maine. Copy at Yale Lost. Stop. Miss Katonic has one. Special collection. Stop. More by post. Marshland. When the pages arrive, by post as promised the following afternoon, Harding is out in the Bluebird with Bert. This expedition is more of a success, as he begins sampling in earnest, and finds himself pelted by more of the knobby transparent pellets. Whatever they are, they fall from each fruiting body he harvests in showers. Even the insult of an amputation, delivered at a four-foot reach with long-handled pruning shears, does not draw so much as a quiver from the shuggoth. The viscous fluid dripping from the wound hisses when it touches the blade of the shears, however, and Harding is careful not to get close to it. What he notices is that if the nodules fall onto the originating shuggoth, they bounce from its integument but on those occasions where they fall onto one of its neighbors, they stick to the touch-transparent hide and slowly settle within to hang in the animal's body like unlikely fruit in a gelatin salad. So maybe it is a means of reproduction, of sharing genetic material after all. 
He returns to the inn to find a fat envelope shoved into his cubby, and eat sitting on his rented bed, with a nightstand as a worktop so he can read over his plate. The information from Dr. Gilman's monograph has been reproduced onto seven yellow legal sheets in a meticulous hand. Marshland obviously recruited one of his graduate students to serve as a copyist. By the postmark, the letter was mailed from Arkham, which explains the speed of its arrival. The student hadn't brought it back to New Haven. Halfway down the page, Harding pushes his plate away and reaches absently into his jacket pocket. The vial with the first glass nodule rests there like a talisman, and he's startled to find it cool enough to the touch that it feels slick, almost frozen. He starts and pulls it out. Except where his fingers and the cloth fibers have wiped it clean, the tube is moist and frosted. What the hell? He flicks the cork out with his thumbnail and tips the rattling nodule onto his palm. It's cold, too, chill as an ice cube, and it doesn't warm to his touch. Carefully, uncertainly, he sets it on the edge of the side table his papers and plate are propped on and pokes it with a fingertip. There's only a faint tick as it rocks on its protrusions, clicking against waxed pine. He stares at it suspiciously for a moment and picks up the yellow pages again. The monograph is mostly nonsense. It was written twenty years before the publication of Darwin's The Origin of Species, and uncritically accepts the theories of Jesuit, soldier, and botanist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Which is to say, Gilman assumed that soft inheritance, the heritability of acquired or practiced traits, was a reality. But unlike every other article on Chagas Harding has ever read, this passage does mention the nodules and relates what it purports are several interesting old Indian legends about the submersible jellies, including a creation tale that would have the Shagaths as their creator's first experiment in life, something from the elder days of the world. Somehow the green bead has found its way back into Harding's grip. He would expect it to warm as he rolls it between his fingers, but instead it grows colder. It's peculiar, he thinks, that the native peoples of the Northeast, the Passamaquoddies, for whom the little seacoast town he's come to are named, should through sheer superstition come so close to the empirical truth. The Shagaths are a living fossil, something virtually unchanged except in scale since the early days of the world. He stares at the careful black script on the paper unseeing, and reaches with his free hand for his coffee cup. It's gone tepid, a scum of butterfat coagulated on top, but he rinses his mouth with it and swallows anyway. If a Shagath is immortal, has no natural enemies, then how is it that they have not overrun every surface of the world? How is it that they are rare, that the oceans are not teeming with them, as in the famous parable illustrating what would occur if every spawn of every oyster survived? There are distinct species of Shagath, and distinct populations within those distinct species. And there is a fossil record that suggests that prehistoric species were different, at least in scale, in the era of megafauna. But if nobody had ever seen a dead Shagath, then nobody had ever seen an infant Shagath either, leaving Harding with an inescapable question. If an animal does not reproduce, how can it evolve? Harding, worrying at the glassy surface of the nodule, thinks he knows. It comes to him with a kind of nauseating, euphoric clarity.
a trembling idea so pellucid he is almost moved to distrust it on those grounds alone. It's not a revelation on the same scale, of course, but he wonders if this is how Newton felt when he comprehended gravity, or Darwin when he stared at the beaks of finch after finch after finch. It's not the Shoggoth species that evolves. It's the individual Shoggoths, each animal in itself. Don't get too excited, Paul, he tells himself, and picks up the remaining handwritten pages. There's not too much more to read, however. The rest of the subchapter consists chiefly of second-hand anecdotes and bits of legendary. The one that Harding finds most amusing is a nursery rhyme, a child's counting poem littered with nonsense syllables. He recites it under his breath, thinking of the itsy-bitsy spider all the while. The wiggle-giggle-squiggle is left behind on shore. The widow-giddle-squiddle is caught outside the door. Ea, ea, fata gun ea, 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 the master comes no more. His fingers sting as if with electric shock. They jerk apart, the nodule clattering to his desk. When he looks at his fingertips, they are marked with small white spots of frostbite. He pokes one with a pencil point and feels nothing. But the nodule itself is coated with frost now, fragile spiky feathers coalescing out of the humid sea air. They collapse in the heat of his breath, melting into beads of water almost indistinguishable from the knobby surface of the object itself. He uses the cork to roll the nodule into the tube again and corks it firmly before rising to brush his teeth and put his pajamas on. Unnerved beyond any reason or logic, before he turns the coverlet down, he visits his suitcase compulsively. From a case in the very bottom of it, he retrieves a Colt 1911 automatic pistol, which he slides beneath his pillow as he fluffs it. After a moment's consideration, he adds the no longer cold vial with the nodule also. Slam! Not a storm, no, not on this calm ocean, in this calm night, among the painted hulls of the fishing boats tied up snug to the pier. But something tremendous, surging towards Harding, as if he were pursued by a giant, transparent bubble. The shining, iridescent wall of it, catching rainbow, just as it does in the Audubon image, is burned into his vision as if with silver nitrate. Is he dreaming? He must be dreaming. He was in his bed in his pinstriped blue cotton flannel pajamas only a moment ago, lying awake, rubbing the numb fingertips of his left hand together. Now he ducks away from the rising monster and turns in futile panic. He is not surprised when he does not make it. The blow falls soft, as if someone had thrown a quilt around him. He thrashes, though he knows it's hopeless, an atavistic response and involuntary. His flesh should burn, dissolve. He should already be digesting in the monster's acid body. Instead, he feels coolness, buoyancy. No chance of light beyond reflexively closed lids. No sense of pressure, though he imagines he has been taken deep. He's as untouched within it as Bert's lobster pots. He can only hold his breath out for so long. It's his own reflexes and weaknesses that will kill him in just a moment now. He surrenders, allows his lungs to fill, and is surprised, for he always heard that drowning was painful, 
but there is pressure and cold and the breath he draws is effortful for certain. But it does not hurt, not much, and he does not die. Command! The Shoggoth, what else could be speaking, says in his ear, buzzing like the manifold voice of a hive. Harding concentrates on breathing, on the chill pressure on his limbs, the overwhelming flavor of licorice. He knows they use cold packs to calm hysterics in insane asylums. He never thought the treatment anything but quackery. But the chilly pressure calms him now. Command, the Shoggoth says again. Harding opens his eyes and sees as if through thousands. The Shoggoths have no eyes exactly, but their hide is all eyes. They see somehow in every direction at once and he is seeing not only what his own vision reports, or that of this Shuggoth, but that of Shuggoths all around. The Cecil and the Active, the Blooming and the Dormant. They are all one. His right hand pushes through resisting jelly. He's still in his pajamas, and with the logic of dreams, the vial from under his pillow is clenched in his fist. Not the gun, unfortunately, though he's not at all certain what he would do with it if it were. The nodule shimmers now, with submarine witch-light trickling through his fingers, limbing the palm of his hand. What he sees, through Shagath's eyes, is an incomprehensible tapestry. He pushes at it, as he pushes at the gelatin, trying to see only with his own eyes, to only see the glittering vial. His vision within the thing's body offers unnatural clarity. The angle of refraction between the human eye and water causes blurring, and it should be even more so within the Shagath, but the glass in his hand appears crisper. Command, the Shagath says a third time. What are you? Harding tries to say, through the fluid clogging his larynx. He makes no discernible sound, but it doesn't seem to matter. The Shagath shudders in time to the pulses of light in the nodule. Created to serve, it says. Purposeless without you. And Harding thinks, how can that be? As if his wondering were in order, the Shoggoths tell. Not in words precisely, but in pictures, images, that textured jumbled tapestry. He sees, as if they flash through his own memory, the bulging, radially symmetrical shapes of some prehistoric animal like a squat, tentacular barrel grafted to a pair of giant starfish. Makers! Masters! The Shagas were engineered, and their creators had not permitted them to think except for at their bidding. The basest slave may be free inside his own mind, but not so the Shagas. They had been laborers, construction equipment, shock troops— they had been dread weapons in their own selves, obedient chattel. Immortal, changing to suit the task of the moment. This self-same Shoggoth, long before the reign of the dinosaurs, had built structures and struck down enemies that Harding did not even have names for. But a coming of the ice had ended the civilization of the masters, and left the Shoggoths to retreat to the fathomless sea, while warm-blooded mammals overran the earth. There they were free to converse, to explore, to philosophize, and build a culture. They only returned to the surface vulnerable to bloom. 
It is not mating, it's mutation. As they rest, sunning themselves upon the rocks, they create themselves anew. Self-evolving, when they sit tranquil each year in the sun, exchanging information and control codes with their brothers. Free, says the Shuggoth mournfully. Like all its kind, it is immortal. It remembers. Harding's fingertips tingle. He remembers beaded ridges of hard black keloid across his grandfather's back, the shackle galls on his wrists. Harding locks his hand over the vial of light, as if that could stop the itching. It makes it worse. Maybe the nodule is radioactive. Take me back, Harding orders, and the Shoggoth breaks the surface, cresting like a great rolling wave, water cutting back before it as if from the prow of a ship. Harding can make out the lights of Passamaquoddy Harbor. The chill, sticky sensation of gelatin-soaked cloth sliding across his skin tells him he's not dreaming. Had he come down through the streets of the town in the dark, barefoot over frost, insensibly sleepwalking? Had the Shoggoth called him? Put me ashore! The Shoggoth is loath to leave him. It clings caressingly, stickily. He feels its tenderness as it draws its colloid from his lungs, a horrible, loving sensation. The Shoggoth discharges Harding gently onto the pier. "'Your command,' the Shoggoth says, which makes Harding feel sicker still. "'I won't do this.' Harding moves to stuff the vial into his sodden pocket and realizes that his pajamas are without pockets. The light spills from his hands. Instead, he tucks the vial into his waistband and pulls the pajama top over it. His feet are numb. His teeth rattle so hard he's afraid they'll break. The sea wind knifes through him. The spray might be needles of shattered glass. "'Go on,' he tells the Shoggoth, like shooing cattle. "'Go on!' It slides back into the ocean as if it never was. Harding blinks, rubbed his eyes to clear slime from the lashes. His results are astounding, his tenure assured. There has to be a way to use what he's learned without returning the Shoggoths to bondage. He tries to run back to the inn, but by the time he reaches it, he's staggering. The porch door is locked. He doesn't want to pound on it and explain himself. But when he stumbles to the back, he finds that someone— probably himself, in whatever entranced state in which he left the place, fouled the latch with a slip of notebook paper. The door opens to a tug, and he climbs the back stair, doubled over like a child or an animal, hands on the steps, toes so numb he has to watch where he puts them. In his room again he draws a hot bath and slides into it, hoping by the grace of God that he'll be spared pneumonia. When the water has warmed him enough that his hands have stopped shaking, Harding reaches over the cast-iron edge of the tub to the slumped pile of his pajamas and fumbles free the vial. The nugget isn't glowing now. He pulls the cork with his teeth. His hands are too clumsy. The nodule is no longer cold, but he still tips it out with care. Harding thinks of himself swallowed whole. He thinks of a shoggoth bigger than the bluebird, bigger than Bert Clay's lobster boat, the Blue Heron. He thinks of de Unterseeboot. 
he thinks of refugee flotillas and trench warfare and roiling soupy palls of mustard gas, of Britain and France at war and Roosevelt's neutrality. He thinks of the perfect weapon, the perfect slave. When he rolls the nodule across his wet palm, ice rhymes to its surface. Command? Obedient, sounding pleased to serve. Not even free in its own mind. He rises from the bath, water rolling down his chest and thighs. The nodule won't crush under his boot. He will have to use the pliers from his collection kit. But first he reaches out to the shagath. At the last moment he hesitates. Who is he to condemn a world to war, to the chance of falling under the sway of empire? Who is he to salve his conscience on the backs of suffering shopkeepers and pharmacists and children and mothers and schoolteachers? Who is he to impose his own ideology over the ideology of the shugath? Harding scrubs his tongue against the roof of his mouth, chasing the faint anise aftertaste of shugath. They're born slaves. They want to be told what to do. He could win the war before it really started. He bites his lip. The taste of his own blood, flowing from the cracked, chapped flesh, is as sweet as any fruit of the poison tree. I want you to learn to be free, he tells the Shagath, and I want you to teach your brothers. The nodule crushes with a sound like powdering glass. Iya, Iya, Fataganya, Harding whispers. Iya, Iya, the master comes no more. Western Union, 1938, November 12, AM 615. NA 1906-212, YA, Passamaquoddy, Maine, 0559A. Dr. Lester Green, Wilberforce, Ohio. Effective immediately, please accept resignation. Stop. En route instantly to France to enlist. Stop. Profoundest apologies. Stop. Please forward belongings to my mother in New York. End it. Harding. There you go. Don't forget copyright as usual. Elizabeth Bears. Just like a big thank you to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much and good luck with the Hugo Award. Fingers crossed. Last but by no means least, English Assassin with part two of Mervyn Peak. Simon, sir, lay it on me. Hi, Tony. The English Assassin here again. And this is the second part of my sermon where I preach the word of Mervyn Peak and his uh, wonderful fiction. In the first part, I uh, talked about his most famous. Uh, his most famous work, the Gormenghast Trilogy, which tells um, the story of Titus Grown, his childhood, and how he grows up in Castle Gormenghast, a sprawling, Byzantine, and sinister castle from which he eventually escapes from in a roundabout way. However, while the Gormenghast Trilogy certainly represents his most famous and probably his strongest work, for um, for those pikophiles out there, there's certainly a little bit more worth checking out. And that's what I wish to discuss here. His only other novel-length work is the delightful Mr. Pie. 
The story of one man's mission to bring the word of God to the island of Sark, the smallest of the three principal channel islands. Mr. Pye's initial efforts win him the friendship of the chain-smoking Mrs. Dredger, and from there he attempts to win over the rest of the island. In fairness, the novel lacks the rich prose of Gormungurth, but it's probably far more accessible for it as well. There's the usual array of wonderful Pekian characters, including Thorpe, a failed artist, and the five foot three inches of sex that is the ever promiscuous Tintagil, among others. Mr. Pye's evangelical successes on the island reward him with the unwanted growth of angel wings. Unwanted because he feels their presence is too ostentatious for him. His efforts to uh, remove the, the wings through, um, through more orthodox surgical means meet with no success. But he, but he hits upon the idea that if he commits acts of sin, to halt, it'll halt the growth of the wings. Well, as you can imagine, life isn't quite so simple, and I won't spoil the novel for you, but uh, I highly recommend it. Other than that, Peek has only written shorter fiction, almost all of which can be found in the collection Boy in Darkness and Other Stories, which contains a mere six stories, but all of them are fine quality, the best of which is the title story, Boy in Darkness, that originally was published as, uh, a, as part of a three-part collection of novellas that he shared with William Golding and uh, John Wyndham, which sounds a pretty amazing lineup to me. Anyway, Boy in Darkness is, in effect, a missing story from Titus's youth, telling of his early forays from the castle. It is a weird dreamlike horror story containing the macabrely genetically modified mutants, Goat and Hyena, and their sinister master, the Lamb. It's as richly evocative as any passages in Gormenghast, and should be considered compulsory reading for any fans of the trilogy. The other story of note in the collection is Dance Macabre, a ghost story which I think puts Poe, M.R. James and Ambrose Burst to shame. The other more minor pieces in the collection are generally anecdotal or dreamscapes, but all are well worth the money. Actually, the collection is a must-have item for fans of Mervyn Peake, because it not only does it showcase his less well-known writing, it also shows many colour examples of his art. There's an eclectic array on display here, which perfectly complement the equally eclectic tales they accompany, ranging from paintings to pen and ink illustrations to simple doodles. They all show off his considerable talent. The last piece of Mervyn Peake's fiction I wish to look at also shows off his artistic skills. It is a heavily illustrated um, absurdist fantasy called Letters from a Lost Uncle. Actually, it's so heavily illustrated, I'm not sure if the pictures accompany the words or is it the other way around. Letters from a Lost Uncle tells the story of an adventurer and explorer on his quest to find the mysterious white lion whose picture he once saw on a stamp. The tale is charming and, as I said, absurdist. A kind of Antarctic, snowbound Alice in Wonderland which should entertain all but the most cynical of readers. Part of the charm of this uh, novella-length book is the sheer physical appearance of the thing. The pages are hand-typed, with the text crudely pasted onto pencil-illustrated pages, with all the typos, doodles, and walrus soup spillages that give it an authentic and 
amateur charm. It's not a professionally produced product as such. Indeed, the original pages have been have discolored even further due to the natural aging of, of old tatty bits of paper, basically. And the new edition makes no attempts to tidy that up, uh, and I think quite wisely. In many ways, Letters from a Lost Uncle typifies Peake's writing. There's no attempt to pr- produce a, a commercial product or, or, or piece of work here. Those hand-typed pages and pencil sketches were made for sheer fun of it, rather than uh, to jump on the latest fad or whatever. I'm not going to pretend that Letters from a Lost Uncle is at all groundbreaking or anything, but it is genuine and, more importantly, more fun than most books I can mention. In summing up, well, I'm not even going to try and sum up Mervyn Peake's fiction. As for me, like all the best uh, fiction, it defies easy analysis and uh, certainly defies simple classification. It's certainly fantastic, but it's not really fantasy, or not generic fantasy anyway. I remember reading, uh, I think it was in the Guardian newspaper, uh, one critic writing about the BBC adaptation of Gormenghast who went on to say that whenever she saw the trilogy in the fantasy section in the bookshop, she would pick it up and and put it in the literature section. Well, I'm not sure what I entirely think about that, to be honest. But I think I take a meaning. So how will I explain? How could I explain Peake? Well, he's a bit like Kafka, a bit like Dickens, a bit like Lewis Carroll, a bit like Poe, maybe even Clark Ashton Smith, maybe. He's very English, and so his books. But although ostensibly, apart from a chapter of Mr. Pie and a short story or two, none of these books are set in England. If you haven't read him, but you'd like to, then, despite its complexity and verboseness, I have to recommend the Gorman Gust trilogy, starting, of course, with Titus Grown. For those who have read Peak and think things start and end with the Gorman Gust trilogy, I say to them, check out Mr. Pie, Letters from a Lost Uncle and The Boy in Darkness, and other stories, all of which are excellent. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Anyway, that's all from me. Back to Tony. There you go. Fantastic two-parter there from English Assassin. Simon, more work my way, please, if you don't mind. <laughs> so that's it. Oral Delights, show number 90, put to bed. What can I say? I'll tell you what I can say. Come over to the sanatorium show. Find out the real truth why I'm staying at my mother's for two days. Yes, it'd be nice if you want to kind of support the Starship Sova. That's the way to do it. Sign up to the monthly donations. £2.50. That's it. £2.50. A pint a month, for God's sake. Man, come on. I take you around all my old haunts this week. Down to where we used to play with the Tarzan swing and everything like that. And like I say, strange memories, strange feelings. So do pop, you know, I do think about coming over and signing up for that. Just one-off donation as well. That would be very nice. Support the good ship so far. Until next week. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two.
two, one.